Before we get into the passage of Scripture we're going to have a look at this morning, let's just take a moment just to pray again. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We want to be your people um, and we want to be authentic and congruent all the way through. Lord God, we ask as we read um, this passage this morning that you would continue doing your work of transformation in us. And Lord, we ask that where you desire to provoke our minds or our emotions in order that we may be transformed, that we may be convicted or that we may be set free, that we may be healed or maybe that our hearts need to be cut. Lord God, would you do that this morning? We want to meet with you. We believe not only in what you say, but in what you do. And you promised that you would be amongst us. You promised that you would renew our minds, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, bringing restoration and bringing transformation. So, Lord God, we ask, would you meet with us this morning? Please open your Bibles to the book of Corinthians. Um, hello to those of you who are visiting with us. Um, and I can't say hello to those who are away visiting other people this morning because they're away visiting other people this morning. That was a joke. I will, I will file that under N for not particularly funny. All right. I know it's church. We are allowed to snicker occasionally. Um, but if the person's fly is undone, tell them. Corinthians. Um, those of you who are visiting with us, we've been doing a series in Corinthians. Um, and we've been working our way uh, more recently into chapter 6. Um, where we've come from in chapter 5, well, actually the first four chapters, let's just recap for a minute. Paul is talking about leadership in the church, and he particularly has issues with church leaders who have not been giving people the good oil, so to speak, people who have not been um, uh, confronting things in the church that need to be confronted, but also leaders who have wanted to be worshipped, uh, who have wanted people to put their trust in them um, rather than in the Lord, and the leadership hasn't confronted this behavior. And so Paul begins by taking to task these Christians who are bragging about who baptized them. They are playing spiritual one-upmanship. And so where we got to last week is then this issue that Paul is talking about, conflict between Christians. And we're going to read these verses just to recap. That Paul um, is having a go at them saying, if you are taking each other to court, you have already been defeated. Um, and he actually says this here in verse 5, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? And so we talked about this idea of having a priority tree when it comes to conflict, going what is it that is the most important outcome when we are in conflict with other people? Is it that we maintain the secrecy of the conflict? Because Paul here does seem to say to the Christians in Corinth, um, you're having a go at each other and it's in the public sphere and non-Christians are watching this go on. What does that say to them about the Lord? But the issue really isn't secrecy. The issue is not so much who has to win this conflict or that the other person needs to get punished or that if someone's being ripped off, Paul asks them the question, wouldn't you rather be ripped off? Because the most important thing for Paul in this is the Lord's reputation. Is when we do conflict, it says something about who Jesus is. And so we talked about um, some of the limitations on what Paul is saying, particularly when it comes to abuse. Uh, it's no secret that Christians have had to take other Christians to court because stuff has simply not been dealt with. 
by people who claim to be representatives of God, by ministers, by priests, by church leadership across every denomination in Australia. And it has not only been Christian groups, it's also been other social groups, um, other sporting clubs. But we have this mandate on us to represent the Lord faithfully. And this hasn't just happened um, through institutions, but this is also something which has played out in intimate relationships between Christians where people have used uh, positional power, where they have claimed to be God's representative and they have harmed other people. So we need to be very, very careful about simply cutting and pasting Paul's words and saying, oh, if you're in conflict, no, 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 you're supposed to shut it down. Paul here is talking, and when he asks them, is there no one wise enough to judge? There is this loaded question of going, it should be able to be addressed by the church. We should, as Australian Christians, actually be doing a very good job of dealing with conflict. And if we can't, then you know what? Sometimes it does need to go into the public sphere because we have failed to represent God faithfully. We had some conversations around that. Let's reread. I'm not going to preach last week's sermon again, but we are going to reread the first eight verses of chapter six, and then we're going to get into the passage of scripture which we're going to be having a look at, which is verses nine to 11. Only three verses. So again, we might finish Corinthians this year. It's entirely possible. That was a joke. <laughs> yeah, cool. Okay, three, three of us were there. Okay, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Um, and I'm going to be reading from an NIV up on the screen. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know? And by the way, this phrase, do you not know, occurs a whole lot in chapter 6 in particular. So if you underline stuff or circle it in your Bible, maybe underline or highlight that. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, in light of this, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, about this... Again, verse 2, Paul uses the word trivial cases, worldly things. If you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you between believers in the church means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers, referring back to the word he's just used, you who do wrong, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the Spirit of our God. And I trust the Lord's timing that we happen to be looking at this passage of Scripture in this particular week. I never know who's going to turn up here on a Sunday and who's going to be away. So I trust that if you're here this morning, then out of this passage of Scripture and out of what I believe the Lord wants us to have a look at, there is something in this which is going to be quite valuable for your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to start by by kind of dealing with the elephant in the room and a couple of obvious things, because Paul's main point here is actually not about homosexuality. It is one among many things that he mentions. It's point number one. This is not something that Paul isolates. This is something he includes in a list of stuff. But it's an important thing in our culture, because out of everything on this list, one of them really makes it into the media at the moment as an area of conflict around Christianity. And amongst different churches and different denominations, amongst different ministers, different Bible study leaders, different Christian thinkers, there is this um, diversity of opinion as to whether or not um, homosexuality or lesbianism, uh, transgenderism, whether any of these other um, activities or ways that people express their sexuality, whether that is still to be categorized as sinful or whether it's actually not sinful. And there are some some quite complex and lengthy discussions about that. I know as a church we've done some workshops before that have been hours long looking at how do we sift through the arguments both for and against. We're not going to do that this morning. I'm going to mention just two or three really brief things. And again, we're going to put this into what I think is Paul's main point this morning. When Paul writes um, here about uh, men who have sex with other men, there are two words that he uses. One is malakos uh, and one is arsenikoides, and they are two Greek words that literally mean those who give and those who receive. And it was a colloquial expression that was used for in a, in a homosexual relationship between two men. Some men were perceived as being more feminine and some were more masculine. Some would be uh, passive in the act or active in the act. And so that's that's what Paul is describing here. And he's using this language amongst a very diverse audience. He's not just writing to Jews. He is writing to the Corinthian church. He's writing to people who would have had a spectrum of political involvement. So Paul here is, is using language which would have been familiar to them. And one of the arguments that does come up about, all right, can we actually put Paul's usage of this aside? Because Paul talks about this in Romans as well. This is not the only time that, that Paul deliberately says this is not an acceptable behavior to God. And there is an argument that is put forward to say that we can put Paul's writings to the side because Paul um, ha- had no awareness of consensual same-sex relationships. That when Paul writes, he's only writing about exploitative um, same-sex relationships, like someone going to a temple and paying a temple prostitute. Someone's being exploited or about a soldier exploiting a prisoner in a homosexual act. What I believe about this, and I encourage you to go and look at the resource um, documentation for yourself, is there is strong evidence to suggest that consensual same-sex relationships were widely practiced and widely accepted in the Roman Empire, even 400 years before the time of Paul, and certainly leading up to the time of Paul and after the time of Paul. He is one of the most well-traveled figures that we have Um, as an author in the scriptures 
And it is likely that Paul would have been familiar with all of these different cultural expressions. So suggesting that Paul lacks awareness, and therefore we can put Paul to the side, I don't believe is a satisfactory argument. The second argument which comes forward is this, is that what was communicated through the Lord Jesus Christ or what was communicated in Leviticus uh, or what was communicated to Paul is culturally bound and is not timeless. There is an argument that it is for that particular culture at that particular time, but because we aren't there anymore, we, we view those things as culturally specific rather than timeless. And I think there are things in Scripture that we need to sift through in this way. The dilemma that I have with that is these words here of Jesus. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says this, speaking to um, teachers of the law and speaking to disciples, speaking to other Jewish people, Jesus says these words, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then when Jesus mentions sexual immorality as something which defiles a person, we need to take it seriously. And even though the whole world or the whole culture around us can be saying, you know what, it's okay to do whatever you feel like, if Jesus says that sexual immorality defiles a person, we need to know what Jesus' definition of sexual immorality is. Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is talking to Jews. When he uses the phrase sexual immorality, they would probably have understood it in a Jewish way. Where do we find a Jewish understanding of sexual immorality? We find it in the book of Leviticus. And even though what Paul writes and what other New Testament authors write is that the, is that the law itself is no longer the basis for righteousness, what we find is that even, even though the law itself is fulfilled and put aside, being sexually immoral still defiles a person according to Jesus. We need to take this idea of sexual immorality seriously and look at Jesus' definition rather than our society's definition. Now, that's not polite. That's not politically correct. That is not the spirit of Australia these days. But we are either followers of Jesus and we take Jesus' words seriously and we do the hard work of sifting through that or we don't. So this idea around particularly homosexuality, which is the one that is mentioned here, is a question of not so much how do I keep the law to be righteous, that's not the deal, but going, okay, if I'm following Jesus, what do I part with out of my life? Or if I was holding on to this, what would defile me? And Paul lists this amongst other things. If you have any more questions about that, let's catch up. Let's have a cup of coffee. I'll bring a whole lot of notes. Let's do the hard work of searching the scriptures together. But right now we need to just let that idea sit and put it to the side because it's not the main point that Paul is trying to make out of this passage of scripture. Paul's main point is this. You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. You were all of these things. This is what some of you were. Paul is critiquing a group of Christians saying that the behaviors that they're holding on to are the behaviors of their old identity. This is not who they are anymore. And this morning, this is not who you are anymore. 
If you belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to you, you have been washed and you have been sanctified and you have been justified. And the first of these, that you have been washed, is really simple for us to understand. Your past is no longer held against you. If you wanted a clean slate, you have a clean slate with God. Jesus can forgive anyone, any sin, any wrongdoing, and God no longer holds it against you. There is no longer the stain of sin on you. Your sin has been washed away. You were washed. The second one, that you were sanctified, is kind of like this. The, the cups in the temple in the Old Testament were talked about as being sanctified. I don't have like a golden goblet this morning, okay? So you need to put up with my mustache mug. If this mug is sanctified, it means that it is set apart for special use. This is what happened to you when you became in Christ and Christ became in you. You were set apart as God's special possession like a special instrument in God's house that is only supposed to be used to worship God or to serve God or for God's enjoyment. It's like being a cup that only belongs to God. Does anyone here in their workplace have their special mug? Yep, some nodding. And what happens when someone touches your mug? (laughs) Or when you go looking for it and it's not there and it's on someone else's desk and it's got yogurt in the bottom of it and some old KFC bones. Um, I had a scarring experience once. We'll talk about that another day. (laughs) But no one else is allowed to use it for whatever they want. It is not for common use anymore. Anything God chooses to use it for becomes God's special use for that special cup. This is you. You were sanctified. You were set apart for God's special use. If God picks up his special thing and says, this one, is mine, and this one is going to be a farmer, or this one is going to build sheds, or this one is going to sit and speak with me. Whatever God does with his mug, with you mugs, whatever God does with his special, with his special sanctified, set apart person, whatever he does with that is now God's activity. It is now sacred and set apart for God. You are no longer to be filled with what everyone else is filled with. You are to be filled with God. For God to drink out of and pour out wherever he wants to be filled by him. You are not to fill yourself with what you used to fill yourself with. This is Paul's point here. These are the things you used to fill yourself with. Not anymore. This is who you were, but this is not who you are. You have been sanctified and you have been justified. You have been made right with God. You no longer need to fear that you are not enough or that you haven't done enough. You have been set in perfect relationship with God. There is nothing between you and God. Christ has removed everything and positioned you before the Father, not on your merit, but on his own merit. You can freely and perfectly enter into the presence of God, not because you are sinless or perfect, but because Jesus is sinless and perfect. That's what being justified 
means. It is done. You haven't earned it. You can't earn it. You don't need to pay for it, and you can't pay for it. It is done. It is finished. You are justified. This is Paul's point. You are no longer what you were. You have been washed. You have been set apart. You have been perfectly set before God in God's perfect love and secure and safe in him for all eternity. And the name of Christ is written on you and God's spirit is within you. So what are you going to do about it? Again, the question got asked, I think, last week, if if you were charged with being a Christian and a follower of Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If this is now who you are, washed, sanctified, and justified, prove it. You don't need to crawl into a bottle anymore. You don't need to be trapped by hopelessness. You don't need to run to the arms of someone who is using you. That's not who you are anymore. You don't need to try and get satisfaction by chasing Whatever sexual urge comes up, you are not the sum of your sexual urges. That is not who God says you are. You don't need to chase the favor of spirits or or idols or star signs, or you don't need to chase the approval of people who walk and talk like they think they're demigods, whether they're sporting heroes or, or celebrities. That's not who you are. You have been washed and set apart and perfectly positioned. You don't need to fear. You don't need to fear leading a meaningless life. You don't need to chase status. You don't need everyone else to know your name. God knows you. God knows you. You don't need to steal from others because God knows what's going on. He knows if you're poor. He knows if you have enough or if you don't. He knows if you're hungry. And you don't need to fear that God has forgotten about you or is not going to provide for you. You don't need to give in to fear. You don't need to run and pick up greed in order to build a little fort around yourself to protect you with stuff. You don't need to indulge or escape the dark by drunkenness or by other things which intoxicate. God's spirit is inside you. You don't need to escape the dark. God is light, the scriptures say and he is in you. We can face these things and we can leave these behaviors behind. You don't need to try and scramble or fight to the front of this world's rat race anymore. You don't need to give in to lying or cheating or tearing other people down or having to be the one that always wins. You don't need to swindle people. You don't need to try and ruin someone's reputation. That is not what you are about. That is not who you are. When you gave your life to Jesus and put him in charge, and he put his spirit inside of you, you got washed. Your old life has been washed away. It is not held against you. It's like he took you, and the picture we have is baptism. He puts you down into the exhaustive, saturating enormity of the death and then the resurrection of Jesus, and you were washed, and you are now his special instrument for his special use, and Jesus has lifted you up and sat you right in front of the Lord. That's who you are. If a person really wants to follow Jesus, then this is really, really, really good news. 
we're allowed to be happy about these things. Right, solemn faces everywhere. Sue, you're smiling. Good. Thank you, Sue. This is good news. It's good news that we are not in charge anymore. It's good news that where we have given in and just followed the ways of the world, that we're forgiven for that, that it doesn't count against us. It's good news that we don't have to live trying to just gratify any sexual urge which springs up. It's good news that a person doesn't have to steal, that a person can rely on God to actually provide for them. It's good news that a person can leave behind greed or drunkenness or intoxication. A person can leave behind gossip and slander and tearing other people down just to make themselves feel better. A person can leave behind trying to swindle others in business and always have the other ha- uh, have the upper hand. It's really good news that we leave those things behind. If it's not good news, if when we read this list of things, we think actually, you know what, there's some things up there I'd really like to continue practicing. There's some things up there that I want to be part of my future. If, if it's not good news leaving these things behind, then what I want to suggest to you this morning is maybe you actually don't want Jesus. Because Jesus promises not only to free us from the punishment for sin, but to free us from sin. If I want to be saved from judgment, but I don't want to leave sin behind, then what I want is not really Jesus. If we want freedom from the consequences of sin, but we don't want to be convicted, and we don't want to be transformed and released and healed and set free, then we actually don't want to follow Jesus. We want Jesus to pick up the tab. We want to follow ourselves. We want to continue acting as God in our own life and for Jesus to pay the bill. See, this is the hard part about what Paul is writing here about being washed and sanctified and justified, is if we seek Jesus, we seek surrender. To seek Jesus is to surrender. To lay hold of Christ is to commit to putting your own desire for control to death. For Christ to be God in your life, control has to die. You need to actually do what the scriptures say and take up your cross and follow him and allow him to put your will for your life to death. Let me give you a word picture. The spirit of control or the attitude or the behavior of control, the spirit of control is like a a black snake that lives in your house and you try to ignore it. It's like the original temptation. The temptation that came to Adam and Eve comes to us as well. You don't have to let God be in charge. You can have power and control for yourself. You can be master of your own destiny. That's what tempts us. The black snake of control. And we hope that by ignoring it, like ignoring an actual black snake living in a house, if we leave it alone, it won't bite you. If you ignore it, it won't harm you but it's a lie. If you had a large black snake in your house that you were trying to ignore, it would affect your behavior. It would affect your decision-making. It would affect where you spend your time. It would affect how valuable different things in the house were that, that maybe needed to be addressed. 
It affects what you're prepared to put up with, how you're prepared to live. It affects what you're prepared to do in order to not have to deal with the snake. Control is like that. Our own desire for control is like that. And if you will not deliberately get hold of the black snake of control and take it outside and shoot it, then Christ is not king in that house. If you will not get hold of control and the desire for control and the temptation of control and to recognize it and to deliberately remove it and put it to death, then Christ is not king in that house and can never be king because you have given the rightful place to the black snake. So what will you do? Paul is confronting a group of Christians here. He confronts the Corinthians. Perhaps you this morning need to be confronted with the way you have been exercising control. I'm preaching to myself here as well, by the way. Perhaps you need to confront yourself. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and realizing that you're afraid of not being in control. Maybe as you read these things on the screen, you look at the one that gives you control. Maybe drunkenness gives you a feeling of control. Maybe slandering and tearing other people down gives you a feeling of control. Maybe swindling gives you control. Maybe sexual indulgence gives you control. What will you do for Christ to truly be king in your life and in your house? I'm going to ask one more question and then I'm going to sit down. Um, we'll do one more song and then we will um, have our meeting at the end of this. But my question is this. What if a church had a spirit of control in that church? What would it look like? How would it turn up? An attitude of control. At what point in the day-to-day, week-to-week life of a church is God's will actually not the thing that everyone is looking towards and referring to? But what if it's what a person or some people in that group want? How would we know? What would it look like? How would a church family go about recognizing and identifying ungodly control in a church and what would they do about it so that God is in the prime position? This is the challenge of all of us who serve in any leadership capacity is that at no point do we let the snake guide us. At no point do we start referring to a control mechanism but we refer to the Lord. What would it look like and what would you do, both in your own life and in your church? I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that our sin is not held against us. And Lord God, I pray for people here this morning, our brothers and sisters who are feeling a sharp edge in in what we have just read. 
Lord God, I ask that you would make your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace known in that person's heart right now. Lord God, I ask that we would walk in that mercy and leave things behind, that we would put off the things that we need to put off. Where we have still been reaching for control, not being prepared to be that new person, to walk in our new identity. Lord God, help us. Help us to have the right conversations. Where we need to shed some tears, Lord, bring the tears. Where we need to change our behavior, our decisions, where we ration our time and our energy, Lord God, interrupt us. Don't let us go away unchanged. And Lord God, where there is something in this church or any church, in our households or in any household, where there is something that has taken the place of you, where the control of a person or persons has supplanted the King of Kings, Lord God, please shine the light in. Help us to see it and help us to know what to do about it because we want to be your people. We don't want to end up following any leader apart from you. Lord God, we ask for wisdom for all those who serve in leadership capacities. We ask that you would continue helping them to choose their words wisely. And Lord, I ask for myself, Lord, please help us to serve faithfully and humbly and for it never to be about us or what we want, but about you. We ask all these things because you are so wonderful and so beautiful and so perfect. You are the God who put on flesh and came looking for us. And there is no one in heaven or in earth who is worthy of adoration and praise. Only you, Lord Jesus. We ask all these things because of you. Amen.